So I'm really excited to get this uh, series started off, the hard sayings of Jesus, and so I'd like to welcome all of you to part one of this five-part series, and as I always do at the 1030 service, also like to welcome all of you who are viewing this uh, sermon later online. It's great to, to have you and uh, to know that our, our gospel reach is not just even right here in Minnesota. When Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, um, his primary purpose, the reason he came, was to be the Savior we needed from sin, death, and hell, the Savior that the entire world needed. And so it was when he was 33 years old that he suffered death on a cross and then rose again three days later. The last three years of Jesus' ministry is what people call his public ministry. It's the time where he kind of went more public with who he was and started to travel around Israel sharing with people that he wasn't just a preacher or a teacher, that he was the Son of God. And when you read through the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, what you begin to see is wherever Jesus went, crowds followed. In fact, sometimes he had to get in a boat and go out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee just to get away from people so that he could spend some time with his Heavenly Father and pray. The reason why people followed him, well, there are many reasons, but they couldn't wait to hear him preach. They loved the insights he had about God and relationship with him. They, some of them also wanted to see him do miracles. There's no doubt about that. There's one occasion when Matthew, one of Jesus' uh, 12 disciples or best friends, um, saw Jesus teach and then had this commentary about Jesus' teaching. It said this, When Jesus had finished teaching, saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their other teachers or preachers or priests. When Jesus taught, it was different. He was the best preacher there had ever been and there has ever been since. And I'm not sure that's necessarily because of his style. We don't know what his style of preaching was necessarily or how he sounded. But what we do know is what attracted people to him is that he preached and taught as one who had authority. Jesus wasn't just a human being. He was God come down to earth in the flesh. Or as one pastor put it, he's God with a bod. Okay, that's Jesus, right? <laughs> and so, who better to speak about the deeper truths of God than God's own Son? Who better to speak about God and His will for people's lives than God Himself? And so, Jesus was all about sharing the deeper truths of God and who He was. He challenged people's feelings and thoughts about life and about God and about how they were to interact with each other. The other interesting thing about Jesus' teaching is this, that Jesus had crowds around Him. He was popular, but He wasn't universally accepted or loved. One of the things that's true about truth is when there's absolute truth, there is always going to be a line that, um, that, that can cause people to be uncomfortable. When there's a right and a wrong, well, there's right and then there's wrong, and that can rub people the wrong way. We're going to talk about that today a little bit. Sometimes Jesus' teaching 
were countercultural. Sometimes it was even divisive. Sometimes his teaching upset certain segments and certain people in culture. Jesus had some hard teachings and some hard sayings. Here's a, here's a few of them. In Matthew, we read that Jesus said, love not the people who are nice to you, not the people who are kind to you. It says, love your enemies and pray even for those who persecute you. Here's the real question. Does this also apply to Packer fans? We'll, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit later in a different, different sermon. Or how about this statement from Jesus? Another hard saying, if your eye causes you to stumble, Meaning, if what you see causes you to sin, whether that be greed or envy or lust or fill in the blank, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. And on that week, we're going to be handing out eye patches um, at the doors. Um, What does this mean? Are we supposed to have half a congregation or more with only one eye or eventually none? What did Jesus mean by that? Or how about this one? Whoever eats my flesh, Jesus says, and drinks my blood has eternal life. And some of you who go to church often are thinking, yeah, he's just talking about communion. Well, communion hasn't been established yet when he speaks these words. What does it mean? And talk about radical religiosity, right? Or religious, talk about religious fanaticism, I guess is what I'm trying to say, huh? There's some hard sayings from Jesus. These are just a few of them. And so often when we come across them, as we're reading on our own maybe, we we quickly bypass them because we're not sure what they mean or maybe we Google answers potentially of what Jesus meant. It's good to wrestle with these things. It's good to dig in. Here's a fill-in that kind of is a theme of this series. Wrestling helps to grow your strength. If any of you ever wrestled in high school and got the privilege of donning a singlet, you know that as you wrestle, as you get used to using your body in that way, um, you get stronger. Same is true spiritually speaking. The way we get stronger is by challenging our hearts, by challenging our minds, digging into things, wrestling with things. And that's the whole hope behind this series, that as we wrestle with the hard sayings of Jesus, that we will better understand who he is, who God is, and that we will grow in our understanding and in our faith and in our trust. Well, today's hard saying is actually like five verses of a whole bunch of hard stuff, okay? And I want to give you a little bit of context before we read it. So about midway through Jesus' ministry, um, he sent out his 12 disciples on kind of like a practice teaching and preaching tour, And before he sent them out on this practice tour, he shared with them some words of encouragement, but he's also very honest with them about what they're going to experience. So we read from Matthew chapter 10. These are Jesus' words to his 12 disciples before they go on this preaching tour. Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace came to bring a sword. Do not suppose, because most people do suppose, that Jesus came to bring peace. But Jesus is prepping his disciples by saying, I've come actually to bring division or to bring a sword. Now, 
if this challenges your heart, join the club, okay? In fact, it almost sounds like it contradicts other parts of Scripture. I read from Isaiah earlier in the service, a prophet from about 700 or so B.C., he shared one of the most well-known prophecies about the coming Savior. Many of you have heard these words at Christmas time, and here's what Isaiah wrote. Unto us a child will be born, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus, the Savior, is prophesied to bring peace And then the angels come on Christmas and they're out in the fields near um, Bethlehem. They're singing and praising God and speaking to the shepherds. And many of you have these words memorized. They, They say to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So is Jesus confusing himself? What's the deal? Is Jesus the prince of peace or the prince of the sword? Well, to answer this question, to figure out this dilemma, you and I need to know that there are two kinds of peace that are spoken of and referenced in the Bible. The first kind of peace, the most important kind of peace, the foundational kind of peace that people can have is a peace between us and God. That when we have peace with God, the creator of the universe, the one who's in charge of all things and of eternity, when there's peace there, when there's a good relationship there, there's also going to be peace right here. When sin has been removed as a barrier, we will be able to live the rest of our lives in peace and really not have to fear anything. Let me bring this home to you, the difference that getting sin out of the picture really makes for us by sharing something that happened to my family about 10 years ago or so. Um, We go visit my parents who live in Orlando every two or three years or so. And one of the times we visited years ago, we were um, heading back after about a week there And we're about 30 minutes on the road back to Minnesota. So we're still basically in the Orlando metro area. And I'm I'm driving up front, as dads do, and um, all of a sudden, all heck breaks loose in the back. And there's yelling, and there's screaming, and and there's even tears. And some people are unbuckling their seatbelts, and they're up on the seats, standing up, crouching over. And I'm like, what is going on back there? Well, that morning, we packed up the car, put all the luggage in there, and so the doors in the back gate were open for a while. And unbeknownst to us, what had snuck into the car was a lizard about (laughs) this long. And it took, you like this, Sue? No, yeah. It took about 30 minutes for it to appear, okay? And I had a choice in that moment because this lizard was coming between me and peace, okay? I could either just live with it and suffer the consequences for 24 hours, or I could pull over and get rid of the lizard and have peace. It's what sin does to us, okay? And many people are content, or maybe they don't know any better 
and they live their entire life, their entire life journey, not being sure of their relationship with God because there's this, this lizard, much worse, this sin that comes between them. And the whole journey, the whole ride is filled with fear and anxiety and stress and worry. Because if God is holy and I'm not, that's a problem. But when Jesus came, and it was declared, peace to those on whom his favor rests. What's declared is that Jesus came to get rid of the lizard, to get rid of sin. And that's what he did on the cross and through his resurrection. He suffered our punishment. He was the first to live and to defeat death. And that as we put our faith and trust in him, we get that same reward of a defeating of death. And, and that gives us hope for eternity, but it also allows us to have peace along the journey because sin is no longer there terrorizing us like it once did. Jesus has taken care of us. And if God took care of that, won't he also take care of you in whatever other smaller things you're dealing with? That's the peace that we can have. That's the peace that Jesus brought, that we have a holy, powerful God on our side. There's nothing better than that. Some of you are struggling with a really difficult health prognosis. Some of you have loved ones that are nearing what it seems like the end of their life here on this earth. Guess what? We grieve, but we grieve like the rest of the world, like not like the rest of the world that has no hope. This is what the Bible talks about, the peace which transcends all human understanding. Have you ever run into someone who maybe doesn't have the same faith as you, not understanding of the same relationship with God as you, and they cannot understand how you can be so calm or how you can get through the death of a loved one the way you do? You're so strong, they might say, no, it's not, that's not true. I'm at peace because Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came to get rid of sin and to give us hope that lasts forever. So, our first fill-in for today. Jesus does bring peace. He brings peace between us and God. And yet, at the very same time that Jesus came to bring peace between us and God, following Jesus can bring conflict into our lives. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That I've come, I'm the Prince of Peace, I've come to bring you peace between, me, between you and between the Heavenly Father. But if you choose to follow me, if you put your faith in me, if you choose to trust me and to follow me, there is going to be division. And there is going to be conflict. And at times, it's going to be the harder route with less peace. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about because I know you'll be able to relate. Here's what um, Jesus said to his disciples once. It was the night before he died. He said, disciples, I want you to know something. You're going to hear a lot of different things. A lot of different people are going to have ideas about God, but I am the way, the only way, and the truth, and the life, 
There's going to be a lot of people trying to, to get into the good graces of the Heavenly Father through other means, but no one comes to the Father. No one has a good relationship with God except by putting their faith in me. Talk about exclusive. How does that go over in our world and in our culture? And I'm not saying you get out on a street corner with a bullhorn and say, all you don't believe in Jesus are going to hell, okay? That's not wise. That's not the right way to go about it. But if we're, to be honest, if we're to be real, there's only one way. And to say that is becoming less and less popular in our world, in our culture. Or how about this? Maybe a situation that all of us have, have faced at one time um, or another. How about the idea of what it comes when it comes to God saying there's a certain way to live our lives? That there's a right way and a wrong way to view marriage, to view sex, to view sexuality, to view the purpose of life, to view how we use our time, to view all areas of life. Whenever we talk about truth, there's always going to be a way that's not true. Whenever we talk about God's direction for our lives, there's always going to be a path that is not God's direction for our lives. If there's a right, there's also a wrong. And guess what? That's not popular in our culture or in our world. Jesus brings peace between us and God. But, number two, following Jesus can bring division between us and the world. When we follow Jesus, when we follow his direction, a result is that there's going to at times be conflict in you and with the people around you. Now, I told you there's a lot of hard sayings in this section. In some ways, it gets even harder. Look at verse 35. For, Jesus says, I have come with a purpose to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Maybe that's the one we can understand the most, right? I don't know. Um, <laughs> a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And some of you are like thinking like, wow, Jesus came to create a family like mine. I didn't know that. I was so down on my family, and yet this is why Jesus came. <laughs> That's not exactly what Jesus meant. This is not the preferred outcome that Jesus had for families. Jesus prefers there to be peace in all families. But what Jesus understood is that the result of following him is going to cause this to happen. That some of the biggest struggles and challenges and hardships that you can find amongst families are at times when people are not all on the same page when it comes to faith and when it comes to Jesus. That those are the things that can cause division, the deepest division more than anything. And that's not a bad thing, it's just a thing thing. Something we need to recognize 
and to understand. I think of um, when I was a kid, uh, there was uh, a daughter of a family who got married, and uh, she chose to marry someone who wasn't a Christian. And part of marrying this gentleman was that she also took on his non-Christian, non-Jesus-believing faith. She came from a family where mom and dad, actually the dad was president of my dad's congregation in, in Texas, and um, a really strong Christian family. You can just imagine how, how this really broke their heart. I am the way, the truth, the life, Jesus said, right? And there were thousands of prayers said for their daughter over the years. And they were always there for her. And they always tried to support her in certain ways, but they could never condone her faith. And it caused conflict. They hoped that their daughter knew that they loved her because they did. But that's why they could not condone because they loved her. And they wanted her to come back to the Lord. Now, it would have been easier for them to say nothing. But it would not have been better. Hmm. Or how about a situation that we all face? Because none of our families are perfect. When an adult child makes certain life choices or life decisions that are not in line with God's truth. Or maybe it's an adult children who see the same thing in their parents who are doing the same. I've seen that too. And it would be easier not to say anything. It would be easier to have some semblance of peace which really isn't peace because if our relationship with God is not right, there is not going to be peace, real, real peace, foundational peace. It'd be easier not to say anything, but it would not be better. And so parents and families try to navigate those situations and those circumstances. And let me tell you, it's not easy. Let me tell you, I wish there was a textbook. Like if the Bible had an addendum in the back and a little index of, okay, what do I do when, right? It's not easy. I think a few generations ago, Christians tried to make it easy. You see, if son or daughter made a really big bad decision or whatever big means to that family, let's say, they would just, you've heard the phrase, my family disowned me, right? And I think in some times there's probably some good intentions by parents. These were loving parents, and yet they made it way easier than it should have been. Because I think of what Paul said as he observed sharing truth. Here's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, if, if I speak God's word in the tongue of men or even of angels, but if I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I am great at pointing out everyone's sin, and I got to look at myself as dad because I like to do that. You guys are not doing things right, okay? If I only point out truth, and it might be true, 
but I am not diligent and I am not strategic and I'm not thinking about how to share love, guess what happens? It's like Charlie Brown teacher. Wah, 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 wah. It's like a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. People don't hear you if it's just truth without love. I want you to know that if you're following Christ, not only do you have the responsibility to follow him, even in the hard ways, but we also have the responsibility to lovingly guide the people around us, even if that means conflict, and to also receive loving guidance when we are erring. And it's a challenge, and it's a struggle, but the two pieces behind it, the two things we need to always have tension over and to look to apply is truth and love. Truth and love. You see, just sharing truth is easy. You just tell everyone that they're wrong. And see ya. Some people do that. How effective is that? They might be right, but it does no good. And then some people like to just be about the love, right? And that's easy too. Because no matter what people do or how they act or the choices they make, oh, I just love you. They're both easy on their own. The challenge parents, the challenge pastors, the challenge congregation, the challenge people who care about the people in their lives is how do we balance them both so that we don't become a gong? The challenge America is the same thing. Here's maybe some guidance for you, our number three fill-in. We cannot dumb down the truth. If there are no standards, if, if there is no truth, then lots of people are going to get hurt in the long run. <laughs> but at the same time, we can never turn down the love. We need to be about both. And who did this perfectly? John chapter 1 says about Jesus that he was the full embodiment of truth and grace, truth and love. You know, he was not afraid to say things that might create some enemies. That wasn't his goal. He just knew that might happen. And guess what? It was some of the enemies he created that did what to him? Killed him. Well, at the same time, it's interesting that there are so many people who seem to be outcasts in society and whom Jesus never condoned what they did, and yet they like to be around Jesus. Someone put it this way, people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. Why is that? Because they could see loving care in him. The more we understand Jesus' ministry, the more I think we'll be able to do what is really, really hard and which will never get perfectly right all the time, share both truth and love in how we live and how we bless the people around us. 
We're not done with hard passages, but we're going to blow through the last three here. Verse 37, anyone who loves their father or more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a hard verse, isn't it? What Jesus is saying is that the most important relationship you can have and where all others stem from is a healthy relationship with God, that he is your number one. And when you recognize his love, when that's number one, all the other relationships become just a little bit easier. Verse 38, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And 2,000 years later, when we hear this verse, we think taking up a cross means bearing some sort of hardship or bearing some sort of difficulty in the name of Jesus, and that's what it's been come to mean. But when the disciples heard this, that's not what they would have heard. This is the first time Jesus ever used this phrase, most likely. And they're literally thinking, whoever does not take their death instrument cross and follow him is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying, I need to be number one in your life. Not because I'm on some ego trip. God does not have an ego, but because he is Lord of all. He deserves ultimate praise. Verse 39, whoever finds their life in the things of this world will ultimately lose real life. And whoever loses their life, meaning earthly life is not as important, for their, my sake, they will find true life. Now, I told you, there's a lot of hard sayings in here. And when we look at our lives, we can think to ourselves, man, I am a horrible failure at this. In a verse, just in the next chapter, Jesus says this about the burdens and the difficulties that we are at times going to have to bear in following him. It says Jesus says, my yoke, the, the, the yoke, the weight that I'm asking you to carry, it's easy. And my burden, the, the burden that I ask you to bear, it's, it's light. And after this message, we're thinking, no, it's not. What in all the world could Jesus mean there? How can it be easy and light? Well, maybe we just need to back up a few steps. And maybe what we need to do is take a big picture view. I want you to think back to the time when you first were thinking about telling your spouse that you loved her or him. There's a little bit of trepidation around that, isn't there? Like, is he or she going to feel the same way? You're not sure how those words are going to be received. I might say, I love you, and she might say, hmm, nothing. <laughs> I was uh, reading about a guy who uh, chose the Atlanta airport to tell his girlfriend that he loved her for the first time, which, man, got to be a romantic to do that, I guess. And uh, when he did, he said, I love you, and she said, I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Come to find out later, that she didn't hear what he said, but 
there's always that trepidation about how it's going to be received because when you say I love you, what you're saying is I'm all in and you're not sure whether he or she is all in as well. You hope so, but you're not sure. There's no uncertainty with God. In fact, he said it first. Right there on the cross. When Jesus died, when he rose again, when he took on flesh, when he was teaching and preaching, he was here to show you that he is all in, that he would do anything, even become a human being for you. I love you, he says. Are we all in for him? Our fourth fill-in today, you will never give up more than what Jesus gave up for you. And I, I don't say this as some sort of guilt mechanism to get you to do what Jesus wants you to do. That's between you and the Lord. I say this because the only way that we're going to take up our cross and follow him is when we truly understand and grasp how he's changed our lives and changed our eternities and changed who we are. And when you do, when you realize that, it changes everything. changes priorities, changes choices. We view our whole life as an opportunity to praise him. So who's Jesus to you? I think sometimes we want to put him in a box and we'll take him off the shelf when we need cancer healed. You should do that. He wants to be there for you. We take him on off the shelf when our children are struggling. We should take him off the shelf. He wants to be there for you. But what we need to do is to never put him in a box in the first place. When Christ is Lord, you know what that word means? It means master. When Christ is Lord of our life, he's never put in a box but he's in every circumstance, every situation, every decision, every choice. And ultimately, we get to live with him all the time. That's the kind of Lord you and I have. That's a kind of amazing new life that we get. So I've got two questions for you as we close. Here's your application. First question is this. Where have I put conditions on my life when it comes to following Jesus? Which section of my life, which attitude, which decision where I know what he wants, but I've, uh, I'm just going to put him on a box, in a box for this one. <laughs> and let's make him Lord over that too. And then as we consider how to love the people around us, how about this? Am I sharing both truth and love with the people around me? Because both are important. And both is the, are the best way for us to make a difference in the lives of the people around us. But beware, be ready to receive truth and love from other people as well, because we need it. And what a blessing it is when someone shares it with us. I want you to ponder these questions this week, and next week we're going to 
continue with another hard saying of Jesus that I pray help you grow in your understanding of how great God is. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to dig into some difficult words, some difficult verses. And Lord, I, I pray that today um, our hearts and minds are opened up to the truth that you'd have for us and that we recognize the amazing love once again that you have for us. And may we not ever put you in a box, but make you Lord over our entire lives. And when we fail, and we will, may we recognize that that Lordship means that you've forgiven us too. Pray this in Jesus, our Savior's name.